Welcome to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today I'm being joined by Wesley Morgan. Wes is a journalist who has covered the U.S. military and its wars in Afghanistan and Iraq since 2007, when he was still an undergraduate at Princeton. His work has appeared in Politico, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, among other places. And he is also the author of the new book, The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley, which was published just this past month by Random House. Wes, thanks for joining the Caravan Podcast, and congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me, Cole. Great. So I think we should set the stage here by noting that it was just last week on April 14th that President Biden announced that the United States would be withdrawing all troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. So bringing the 20-year American military effort there to an end by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. This, of course, uh, followed the February 2020 agreement between the United States and the Taliban, whereby the United States pledged to leave the country by May 1 in exchange for the Taliban entering peace negotiations with the Afghan government, though these have really gone nowhere, uh, and promising not to allow Afghanistan to be used to threaten the United States. Uh, another um, pledge that a lot of people are very skeptical of. So this discussion today is, is very timely. Your book, of course, is focused on, on the Afghan war, and I believe uh, has a lot of implications, a lot to say about Afghanistan's future uh, post-U.S. withdrawal. Uh, a recent review in foreign policy said that Quote, the Hardest Place is an urgent book that will help us understand what might happen if U.S. troops go. Uh, so before we talk about the announcement and what's next for Afghanistan, we should definitely uh, talk about the book. Um, perhaps you can start us off by first telling us what is the, the Hardest Place and, and how did you um, become interested in it to begin with? Sure. So the Pech Valley is uh, a valley about 100 miles northeast of Kabul. Um, it, it flows down from really high mountains in Nuristan uh, into a border province called Kunar that uh, abuts Pakistan. Um, and flowing into the Pech itself are a number of tributaries that are also very famous, in fact, more so in some cases. The Korengal Valley, the Waigal Valley, uh, where some really tough episodes of the war have happened. Um, I first found myself in the Pech uh, in 2010, the summer of President Barack Obama's Afghan surge. Uh, embedded with a, a battalion of 101st Airborne Division uh, as it was essentially figuring out uh, whether it was serving any useful purpose in the patch anymore. Okay, and then um, you found yourself there in 2010. And how come um, you came to write a, a book about about this, this, this valley and its tributary valleys? Um, what was your interest? I know it goes back even further than 2010. Isn't that right? Um, so uh, I'd been going to Afghanistan for a little while at that point. I think 2010 was my, my second trip, um, but it was my first up to the northeast uh, where this valley system is. Um, and I, I, was, I was there as a freelancer covering the U.S. war effort. I mean, I would just bounce around from one battalion to another covering their operations. Um, but I wound up uh, being, becoming really fixated on the patch for a few reasons. Um, you know, one was just how unique the war there was in some ways. I mean, um, the, the terrain is uh, extremely uh, jagged. The forests present all these difficulties for U.S. operations. 
Uh, it's just it was un different from the war I'd seen in other parts of the country. Uh, and then also the Pesh seemed to really um, hold, hold in one small place two big threads of the U.S. war effort in Afghanistan, one being the kind of the bigger nation building and counterinsurgency product project, and one being the smaller, narrower counterterrorism mission uh, that had brought U.S. forces to Afghanistan in the first place. And because U.S. forces had been in the patch for so long, it was kind of not obvious which one had started first and how they intertwined. And that was what I set out to figure out initially with a, a senior thesis while I was still in college, and then eventually uh, for this book. Okay. So one thing that's um, I want to get into is the reason for the United States uh, having such a strong military presence in this part of Afghanistan, this very, I think you can call it remote, rugged, uh, you know, implacable part of Afghanistan uh, to begin with. If anyone's seen the, the movie Restrepo, um, which is about, I think, U.S. Uh, forces in the Korangal Valley, which is a tributary valley of the Pesh uh, sometime in, what was it, 2007 or 2008? Yeah, two thousand seven um, to eight. That's right. Yeah, the and a lot of the uh, the footage there shows the soldiers sort of reflecting on their presence, saying, "Why are we even here? Um, so why why were they even there? How did we get drawn in uh, to this area?" Yeah, I mean, and, and that was a question you would hear guys asking at these little outposts. I remember hearing it myself in two thousand ten um, at the remaining outposts in the patch, even after things had begun to retract. And the, the reason was. Um, U.S. forces had been rotating through these little outposts for so long at this point uh, that nobody who had been there at the beginning was still around or, or even had talked to these guys for the most part, with very few exceptions. Um, so, so what I tried to do was trace back uh, the origins of each one of these little outposts in and around the patch by, you know, I would have the company commander there introduce me to the company commander before him, who'd introduce me to the company commander before him who'd introduce me to the platoon leader that he replaced, who might in turn introduce me to the Green Beret team leader uh, that he replaced if he knew his name. Uh, and and this, through this process, I eventually kind of traced it back to 2002. Uh, and then the spring of 2002, about six months after 9-11, the first CIA and Joint Special Operations Command operatives uh, arrive in Asadabad, the, the provincial center of Kunar, uh, and establish a, a small outpost there um, which still exists to this day as an Afghan security force base. Um, uh, and essentially, they were, they were trying to pick up the lost trail of Osama bin Laden, who had gotten away uh, at Tora Bora in December of 2001. Uh, and so all these little teams were fanning out throughout the Afghan East. Um, and one of them, which it turned out they were actually pretty close behind bin Laden's trail, because we, we do know now that he sheltered in Kunar for some time before moving on to Pakistan, um, they set up in Asadabad and basically just started looking for Arabs, um, tracing, you know, hunting down clues of anybody who might be able to tell them anything about where Al-Qaeda fighters had gone after they were displaced from Tora Bora. Okay, so we're there in 2002, beginning in 2002, looking for bin Laden and his associates. But of course, we don't, we don't find them there. Um, or there are some Al-Qaeda figures, uh, certainly, uh, but not bin Laden. But why why do we stay in this valley, and why do we actually increase our military uh, presence? There's one person you quote in the book. I think later in the book, he uses the metaphor of of a hammer in search of nails to pound. Is that sort of the right the right reason for? I mean, the right metaphor for understanding why we were there. I think it's a good one. Yeah. Um, if you look at kind of the little increments by which the U.S. military presence in in the patch increased. Um, you see it drift farther and farther away from the initial purpose of, of searching for Al-Qaeda operatives. Um, 
you know, there's another big push in 2003 to pick up Bin Laden's trail. It, it doesn't turn anything up because, of course, by that time he's in Pakistan. Um, but there are al-Qaeda operatives um, hanging around in Kunar. There's one in particular. And for the military, whose, whose writ and authority is only to operate on the Afghan side of the border, the presence of any al-Qaeda operative uh, is an extremely appealing thing. Um, he, that that al-Qaeda operative is a very attractive nail for the military hammer, much more so than you know, local actors in this what's beginning to be an insurgency. Uh, so there, there's an Egyptian figure, uh, an al-Qaeda figure named Abu Iqlas, um, who we learn much later when U.S. forces capture him in 2010, uh, was much more of a, 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 a figure in the local insurgency, kind of a, almost like a, a, a green, Al-Qaeda Green Beret training and advising local troops than he was an international terrorist. But by virtue of his association with and membership in Al-Qaeda, um, he was impossible for the military and the CIA to ignore. He was, he was a flashing object um, who, who, who drew their focus anytime he appeared. Um, and this continued to be true uh, even as the insurgency began to blossom uh, in, in the Pesh in response to the U.S. presence. Uh, and, and gradually, this kind of the counterterrorism mission uh, gets lost uh, in, in, in the wash. Um, and, and you see uh, U.S. forces come in and build counterinsurgency outposts and start embracing, you know, road building and reconstruction um, for purposes that in fact, do remain tied to counterterrorism. I mean, there's sort of a hidden hand here of the CIA at a, at a key juncture in 2006, where it's encouraging the military to apply counterinsurgency tactics in this particular place. But as far as the troops uh, fighting there are concerned, uh, when it scales up to this big battalion level, hundreds of soldiers in these valleys uh, fighting day in and day out, starting in 2006, uh, they never they don't see Al Qaeda. I mean, they're fighting a, a, a local insurgency. So tell us about the time when, I think it's around 2010, 2011, the United States military comes to the conclusion that we really need to draw down our presence in these outposts and and change our, our posture to one that's more um, counterterrorism focused uh, from the air. And, and some of the things that you talk about, like unit rotation, uh, confusion in command and control seem to have contributed to well, what might I think it's fair to say is kind of a failure uh, on the part of our our presence to try to bring order um, and security to this area. Can you talk about some of those issues as well? Yeah. So by 2010 and 2011, when the U.S. military initially departs the Pesh Valley, having reached the the conclusion that its counterinsurgency efforts had failed there, um, it's also created such a, a a violent and notorious conflict in the area that it has drawn in other actors who weren't there before. Um, so even as the, as the conventional military is leaving, pulling out of its outposts, uh, you know, departing for larger bases, uh, the, the mountains, especially the mountains and tributaries north of the Pesh Valley, uh, become an area of renewed interest for the CIA and the Joint Special Operations Command, in large part because of the presence of a younger Al-Qaeda figure named Farouk Al-Qatani, who uh, we believe had shown up there sometime around 2009, um, like many foreign fighters, essentially to be blooded and to, to learn about combat uh, in, this, in the guerrilla warfare of this very difficult place. Um, but as U.S. forces left, um, Al-Qaeda senior leadership, as revealed in some of the bin Laden letters uh, that were recovered at the Abbottabad compound in 2011, actually identified Farouk, who's mentioned in correspondence between uh, Osama bin Laden and one of his senior associates, um, as a potential host for a backup safe haven 
from the CIA drone campaign in Waziristan, which was very intense at that time. So what the what JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, sets out to do in the aftermath of the conventional military departure on the ground is to kind of replicate that CIA drone campaign under military auspices uh, up in this part of Afghanistan. And this effort is called Operation Haymaker. It hasn't received much attention over the years uh, in, you know, in comparison to the CIA drone campaign in Pakistan, but it was quite intense. Um, and it was really a, a, a top focus for a succession of U.S. commanders and, and uh, Joint Special Operations Command leadership for, for several years. And was it fairly successful in, in achieving its objective of, of eliminating al-Qaeda figures? Well, uh, it, it did, in fact, eventually kill Farouk al-Qahtani. It killed him after about five years of pretty intense effort in the fall of 2016. Um, and it killed a number of other al-Qaeda figures early on, mostly in the first year to two years of effort in 2012 and 2013. After that initial year or two, there really was a diminishing returns, and the, the campaign became less about actually killing al-Qaeda fighters, although it did continue to do that when possible, and, and more about killing people who might be supporting them, uh, to make life difficult for them, to keep a lid on them, to make sure that whatever al-Qaeda fighters were doing up in a place like the Weigel Valley, it wasn't plotting some international terrorist attack. Although I think uh, there, there's only you know fairly, uh, fairly vague evidence that that's what they were doing up there in the first place. And these, these groups of al-Qaeda uh, members who are primarily um, Arabs, I would imagine, uh, they, of course, had a, a close relationship with the Taliban. Is, was it the Taliban uh, in, in particular who were up there uh, hosting these guys? They, they had a close relationship with local insurgent groups. Uh, and in most cases, these local insurgent groups had affiliated themselves with the Taliban, but they weren't really Taliban in the sense of, you know, capital T, Southern Afghanistan, Taliban, Heartland, Taliban. Um, in many cases, these were local groups of Salafis who, in some cases, had supported the Taliban before 9-11, and in other cases, had opposed the Taliban before 9-11. Uh, and these were the kinds of groups uh, in which these al-Qaeda fighters uh, embedded themselves and where they found, um, they found harbor and were, were treated as guests and advisors. Now you mentioned the, the presence of Salafis, and it's my understanding that in, in Kunar, and we're talking about the Afghan Northeast, um, as well as the is Nangarhar, the, um, the neighboring province there, Salafism has a strong presence. And people should understand that um, Salafism is not the, the dominant religious ideology in Afghanistan by any means. And it's not the ideology that's subscribed to by the Taliban themselves. They subscribe to a Hanafi Maturidi version of, of Sunni Islam, which in many ways is really quite at odds and incompatible with, with Salafism, which is the, the more purest uh, version of Sunni Islam that's more often associated with Saudi Arabia. Um, so can you tell us about um, what happens in among these uh, Salafi communities, they become attracted to, to ISIS um, around 2015, 2016. And suddenly these va this valley uh, seems to become um, kind of a, uh, an ISIS hub. That's right. Um, Kunar, because of its Salafi presence, um, which you know, back, back during the Jihad in the 1980s, um, Kunar was a particular place that you often would find uh, Saudi foreign fighters, for instance, because of this connection. Um, but because of this Salafi presence, it was never a natural fit for the Taliban, which in part is why the Taliban was not strong there before 2001. Um, these local Salafi groups allied themselves with the Taliban as the war dragged on, the war against the United States, 
because they needed the resources um, and, and manpower of the Taliban and because the Taliban was inserting itself into the, into the conflict in Kunar in various ways. Uh, but yes, yeah, starting in 2015, you, you do see a strong presence uh, of ISIS. Once ISIS arrives in Afghanistan, uh, very often it is these little local groups in Kunar and Nagarhar that um, you know take down the white flag of the Taliban and raise the black flag of ISIS and become the group's manpower. So when we're looking at you know what ISIS became in Afghanistan, to a very great extent, it was these small local groups in these valleys in Kunar and Nagarhar uh, simply rebranding themselves uh, and, and changing changing their allegiance. I mean, you don't you don't see a lot of evidence, almost none, in fact, of uh, you know fresh Arab fighters uh, coming in from Iraq and Syria uh, as part of this ISIS um, uh, the, the arrival of ISIS in Kunar. And do you think these these um, these Afghans who are rebranding themselves as as ISIS is their connection to ISIS uh, purely ideological, or is there a material benefit that accrues to them by um, by rebranding themselves as such? I think you see a range of reasons. I think there are ideological reasons um, that groups, uh, you know, that groups like in the Korangal Valley, for instance. Um, you know, raise the ISIS flag and, and, and sign up for it. I think there also are material reasons, uh, you know, reasons of pay, you know, especially in that early period when there probably were resources, if not manpower, uh, flowing in externally to ISIS-K. Um, and you know, there might be- You should explain, that... I, ISIS-K means ISIS Khorasan province, right. K-H-O-R-A-S-A-N. Uh, and that refers to a sort of medieval uh, geographical designation that included Iran and Afghanistan. Right, thank you. Sorry. Uh, but so the reasons uh, for joining this group may also be very prosaic. I mean, uh, you, you can use the think of the example that a, a Nuristani um, told me about from what for the remote village that he was from of a, a local low-level Taliban commander, somewhere kind of low on the totem pole in the district, um, deciding to join ISIS because he was going to be the number one in the district for ISIS. I mean, it was sort of a chance for for promotion. Interesting. A lot of the um, the ISIS-K or Islamic State in Afghanistan propaganda that I looked at, they show a lot of um, disaffection with the Taliban. One of the claims made is that the Taliban has has deviated from its original uh, path and no longer uh, is about establishing a pure Islamic State. It's interested in uh, making arrangements with the West, things like this. Um, do you think that, that that's kind of actually representative of the way that a lot of these people in eastern Afghanistan who align themselves with ISIS, they feel? I think there's anecdotal evidence of that. I think there's also, um, not with the Taliban, uh, but with uh, Hizbi Islami Golbuddin, Golbuddin Hikmatyar's militant organization, uh, you can see some kind of premonitions of that um, when he, in 2016, puts down his arms and, and, and goes to Kabul and reconciles. You see factions of his group um, at that point. Uh, sign up for ISIS. Um, so I think that's always, you know, a, a, a fear um, uh, that the Afghan government has and that the Taliban has uh, is that as they enter into negotiations, uh, that they will lose manpower uh, who are not happy with those negotiations and that they will find kind of the waiting arms of the Islamic State um, ready to welcome them. Great. Makes me really want to ask you about what's what's happening next. Uh, but first, we want to get to the um, the period that you write about at the very end of the book, which involves the United States serving as what some uh, special operators uh, called the Taliban Air Force. So we, we 
when the when ISIS starts to become uh, really powerful in in this region of Afghanistan, we find ourselves sort of in bed with our our erstwhile enemy. How did that work out? Yeah, we do, especially in Kunar. Um, the way it kind of plays out is that. Um, ISIS's biggest stronghold in Afghanistan was actually in the province to the south in Nangarhar. And over the course of 27 and 2018, uh, as they were pushed out of there by a combination of Afghan government and, and U.S. air power, um, they sort of doubled down in Kunar and they made a big push to control a number of the same valleys uh, that the book talks about, valleys uh, adjacent to the Korangal um, that flow into the Pech and, and Kunar valleys. Um, and so the, the effort to push them back out of there in 2019 and 2020 uh, becomes uh, really a joint effort um, on the part of the United States, the Afghan government, and the Taliban, uh, with the government and the Taliban actually agreeing to formal truces uh, at, several, at several points during this period uh, in order to mutually uh, go after the Taliban, mass their resources, I mean, go after ISIS, mass their resources against ISIS. Uh, and you see the U.S., by virtue of essentially being the, the air power in the province. Um, it's of course supporting the Afghan government in its offensives, but the, uh, the Joint Special Operations Command Task Force at Bagram, the Rangers, uh, they also you know, kind of apply the creative solution of using the same old intelligence collection tools, listening in on the Taliban, um, but not just to strike the Taliban, but to figure out what small-time Taliban commanders in the fight against ISIS up in these valleys need. Um, for example, to identify, okay, the, this Taliban, uh, you know, platoon leader or whatever he may be, is concerned about this ISIS machine gun nest that he's going to have to go up against in the morning. So therefore target that ISIS machine gun nest, a uh, kind of in an effort to sway, uh, to sway the outcome of these of this tactical conflict uh, from one enemy against the other enemy. And it's an interesting calculation, because, of course, um, you know, underpinning it, you know, underpinning the idea that uh, ISIS is the is the bigger enemy and the one that we should be more worried about is the idea that it's in an international terrorist organization, which I think uh, in Kunar it really is not. Um, whereas the Taliban, uh, you know, local uh, a local insurgency does remain an ally of Al Qaeda and a host for Al Qaeda. That's interesting. I hadn't actually thought of that. That the perhaps our, our prioritization. Uh, of the enemy in Afghanistan um, was not um, was not correct. Do you think that there was something to that? That maybe we would have been better off actually attacking the Taliban and letting ISIS kind of remain. I don't know. Um, I don't think I'd go so far as to say that. I, I think I'd say that um, uh, at least my interviews showed that during this most recent, the last few years, um, as the JSOC air campaign has has focused on on ISIS in Afghanistan. Um, that's been a very convenient target, and it's been an attractive target mm -hmm. um, compared to kind of the the long hard work of you know looking for the needle in the haystack of a of a of an Arab advisor living up in the Helgal Valley or something. Now, ISIS, on the other hand, presents immediate targets that you can you can put drones up and strike. Um, so I think it kind of it became addictive for the for the Ranger Task Force to go after ISIS targets, uh, and they were very willing and happy to you know make that their priority. And when you first wrote about this in 2010, with this idea of the United States serving as the Taliban Air Force, um, the Taliban uh, apparently read the article and they didn't really like the implication. Uh, how did they respond? Sure. Yeah. So 2020 rather than 2010. But um, excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so a, a little under a year ago was when I wrote this. Um, 
in what was kind of a, an adapted passage from from the book. Uh, but yes, the Taliban did not care for it. Um, they uh, their implication was that it was not true. Uh, they they went to great you know went to great lengths to point out correctly that they that it's not as though the United States had stopped targeting them, which is an interesting facet of this whole situation, right? Which is you know in in the six months preceding the Doha deal, when we know that this was going on, when this Ranger team at Bagram was jokingly calling themselves the Taliban Air Force, and I've since been told that they actually had a sign in the operations center um, with that phrase on it, Taliban Air Force. Uh, the whole rest of the task force was still hammering the Taliban everywhere else in the country um, in, in really a, an air campaign that uh, the likes of which had not been seen since the surge era a, a decade earlier. And similarly, at the same time that the Afghan government and the Taliban are uh, signing truces uh, in Kunar uh, to go after ISIS together, and even in some cases uh, going farther than that, I mean, in, in advance of the presidential election in, in 2019, um, the Taliban actually went into villages in the in the western Pesh Valley and drove ISIS out in the days ahead of the election to ensure that people would be able to vote, uh, which is kind of a mind blowing situation. Um, uh, all at the same time, the government and the Taliban are at each other's throats in an incredibly bloody conflict in every other part of the country. So it's it is a strange little slice where because of the presence of this other group, ISIS. Um, people's priorities are, are, are shifted and different. Yeah, speaking of uh, shifting priorities, um, last week when President Biden made the announcement that the United States would be withdrawing all U.S. forces from Afghanistan uh, by 9-11 of this year, um, he, he alluded to this idea that the, the terror threat in Afghanistan had transformed. I just want to read a passage uh, from his, his speech because I think it bears uh, on, on what you were saying. Over the past 20 years, he, he says, the threat has become more dispersed, metastasizing around the globe, Shabab in Somalia, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Nusra in Syria, ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates in multiple countries in Africa and Asia, with the terror threat now in many places, keeping thousands of troops grounded and concentrated in just one country at a cost of billions each year makes little sense to me and to our leaders. While we know that... Um, when he mentions our leaders, it's not entirely uh, true because a, a number of, of his generals, as um, I think the Wall Street Journal was, has reported, uh, apparently did not agree with this uh, no conditions based uh, approach to withdrawal. I was wondering how um, if we could get your reaction to uh, to Biden's announcement. Um, what, what was your reaction? Uh, do you agree sort of with his take about the transformation uh, of our mission and, and the threat there? Um, and in particular, we'd like to hear about um, how this is going to affect the, the Pesh Valley in particular. Sure. So I think um, as far as the Pesh Valley is concerned, I think it will affect the Pesh Valley a lot less than it will affect many other parts of Afghanistan. Um, the war is not over in the Pesh Valley by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the Taliban just a couple of weeks ago uh, made a major push to take one of the district centers in the western Pesh. Um, but it's not a, it's by no means a strategic place uh, for the Taliban, except where uh, ISIS is concerned, the threat of this rival militant group. And ISIS is very much on the downswing uh, in Kunar at the moment. I mean, it, it controls just a sliver of the territory that it controlled a couple of years ago. Um, as far as the kind of the bigger question of the terrorist threat, uh, I think it's 
you know, it's a, we can look back at the history of U.S. military counterterrorism efforts um, in and around the patch, which for a long time really were the focus of their counterterrorism efforts in Afghanistan because of the the persistent uh, and visible Al Qaeda presence. And we can see kind of two uh, two types of Al Qaeda figure present there. You know, one type is Farouk Al Qatani, who began uh, as you know a local fighter. Uh, I mean, a foreign fighter, but uh, coming to a, a local conflict to make his to make his reputation there. But who seemed to grow into something more, uh, and who really rose to the attention of pretty senior members members of the intelligence community um, during the Obama administration's second term. Uh, and there and there was evidence that uh, that the CIA and the and the four star U.S. commander in Kabul found worrying enough to, to, you know, to pursue um, that he was bringing in Pakistani nationals to train for, for attacks outside the country up in his little, his little remote part of Eastern Afghanistan. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you've got Abu Iqlas al-Masri, the uh, sort of older Egyptian figure who the U.S. military chased around the same area for the first 10 years of the conflict, who, when he was captured, um, turned out to be much more of this battlefield advisor figure and not an international terrorist. So I think the question uh, that the that the administration and the Pentagon and the intelligence community are kind of are grappling with um, is who are the Al Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan today? Are they Farouks or are they Abu classes? Um, and of course, from the military's and the intelligence community's perspective, that will become a much harder question to have answers to uh, in the aftermath of a U.S. military departure. Uh, and also, it's a, a, a question whose answer may change in the aftermath of the U.S. military's departure. Um, the CIA director, uh, Director Burns, testified last week on the same day as President Biden's announcement um, that al-Qaeda in Afghanistan uh, does not have the capacity uh, to launch an external attack against the United States. Uh, but he also testified that it has the intent to do so. Uh, so from the military's perspective and the CIA's perspective, uh, is it, is it the case that Al-Qaeda lacks that capacity only because of the counterterrorism efforts uh, that we have amassed against them for all this time in Afghanistan? Uh, and will they regain that capability kind of the moment or soon after we, we pull that pressure off? Uh, I think those are the, the big questions um, that the administration has to grapple with with regard to Afghanistan. But as for, you know, sort of where this all fits into the global picture, I mean, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Afghanistan, uh, as you know better than I do, Afghanistan today for Al-Qaeda is not what Afghanistan was for Al-Qaeda even a decade ago. Um, you know, when, when, when Osama bin Laden was talking about Farouk al-Qahtani in, in his letters to Atiyah in 2010 and early 2011, um, much more of Al-Qaeda senior leadership was still located in, in these tribal areas, um, you know, along the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, and I think, as you could probably speak to, uh, there's a there's a, a much more there's much more to many other havens today that that didn't exist at the time. Well, sure, there's you know there's Iran and uh, there's been some leadership in Syria that a lot of them have died um, being in Syria. Um, one thing that uh, I remember uh, last year, uh, the CENTCOM commander, I think McKenzie, uh, was at an event uh, at the Middle East Institute, and he mentioned almost kind of offhand. Maybe he wasn't supposed to say so. That Ayman Azawahiri, the leader of Al Qaeda, is currently living in northeastern Afghanistan. Um, so well, he hasn't been heard of. There's a lot of rumors that he's dead, but it does seem like there's still some uh, leadership presence. And then um, a few a few months back, maybe six months ago, we killed the, or actually I think it was Afghan special forces who killed um, uh, uh, what's his name, um, uh, Raouf, one of the uh, 
one of Al Qaeda's uh, media leaders um, somewhere, not not in the Pesh Valley, but uh, farther south, I believe. So these, this is um, still a an ongoing uh, threat that the Al Qaeda Al Qaeda still has a presence, um, even though the Taliban, of course, deny that there are any and there there have been any Al Qaeda members in Afghanistan since nine eleven. Um, so for me, um, I find it this a little troubling because. Um, as many people predict, and I'd like to hear your prediction about this, uh, the Taliban is poised to take control over most of Afghanistan, um, if not all of Afghanistan, in the next several years. Um, and, the, and the question is whether uh, al-Qaeda's sort of haven will be reconstituted as a result, despite what the Taliban has pledged regarding its um, its promise to not allow Afghanistan to be used as a base and as a platform for attacking the United States. A question that I would pose in response to that is whether uh, the Al-Qaeda base under in Taliban-controlled areas has already been reconstituted. I mean, I think for, for a long time, for a long period of U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan, uh, it, it really seemed like Al-Qaeda was fairly confined uh, to, the, to the Afghan East, that there was kind of a year-round presence in Kunar and Nuristan, north of the Pech Valley, and that there were sort of seasonal fighters who would come into other eastern Afghan provinces. Uh, but as we see today, you know, when, when al-Qaeda figures, you know, in, including Arabs, uh, are, are killed by Afghan special operations forces, uh, they range from Ghazni to Helmand. I mean, pl places that the U.S. military forces never used to find al-Qaeda fighters when they were looking pretty hard for them with the benefit of uh, some, some pretty expansive surveillance systems, uh, most of which are not operating now at the capacity that they were then. So I would really question the extent to which uh, we really have a, a granular notion of what al-Qaeda is doing already in, say, Helmand province or, or Taliban-controlled portions of Kandahar province or Ghazni province. Um, so I think, you know, after the departure, we may see kind of a, a continuation of that trend, um, but we should be we should be careful not to uh, to overstate um, what our current counterterrorism capability is in the region in terms of detection. I mean, I think obviously in terms of strike, we've got a ranger battalion or portion of a ranger battalion sitting at Bagram that can go out and strike whatever target it wants, uh, and that's you know, and that strike capacity is is another part that's going to go away. So that's yeah, I want to get to this because um, you have such such knowledge of how the military works, including uh, special operations forces and and our drone uh, strike capability. Um, how do you foresee uh, things changing with regard to our abilities to to collect and carry out these strikes once we do not have a base in Bagram, once we don't have any troops at all in Afghanistan? Um, where are we going to conduct these operations from, if if anywhere? Yeah, so I think um, the actual, the kind of strike capability um, in Afghanistan won't really go away completely uh, as U.S. forces leave. I mean, we, all through this war, we have, in addition to flying fighter jets out of Bagram and Kandahar airfields, we have always had fighter jets flying in from carriers in the Indian Ocean. We've always had, um, you know, B-1 and B-52 bombers uh, flying in from the Gulf uh, and maintaining an, a presence over Afghanistan that can drop bombs at a moment's notice. Um, so I think that, you know, that can still exist if the Pentagon chooses for it to. Uh, but what will be missing, which is a pretty key part of this kind of intelligence strike uh, loop uh, that the Joint Special Operations Command has become to be real specialists in, uh, is the surveillance part of it. You know, you can't keep 24-7 uh, Reaper drones uh, flying over Kunar or Nuristan uh, from the Indian Ocean. They just don't, that's just not, they don't fly that far. Um, they don't have an aerial refueling capacity. Um, 
So, you know, figuring out where targets are, I think, will be much more difficult. You know, a lot will come down to the relationship between the CIA and its Afghan partners, the NDS. Um, the NDS also uh, are uh, resident within the NDS is another of the strike arms that we'll see how available it is to, to U.S. forces in the year to, years to come. There are these uh, former counterterrorism pursuit teams, is what they used to be called. Now they're known by names such as NDS-01, mm -hmm. NDS-02, NDS-04. Uh, and these are essentially CIA surrogate units um, that use Afghan troops, Afghan NDS commandos, to go out and hit targets in place like, places like Kunar, um, where we don't want to risk a ranger strike force. And so I think what becomes of those, uh, of those NDS units that are currently and have been CIA surrogate forces in the years to come uh, is going to be a really interesting question. And the, the degree to which the CIA is still able to kind of manage them and advise them and, uh, and even be aware of what they're doing as its footprint shrinks inevitably with the military's footprint. Yeah, well, we have to have hope uh, in the first place that and the NDS, which is based on the Afghan government, will will continue because at least there's a lot of um, there's a lot. I mean, there's a strong view of consensus almost among the kind of uh, foreign policy establishment that's quoted in and newspapers like the New York Times and and the Washington Post seem to be saying that uh, the Kabul government is very very fragile, and once we leave, it's only a matter of time before. The Taliban takes over. Would you agree with that sort of uh, impression that's being given in the press? I don't know um, that I am well informed enough about Afghan national politics to weigh in on that question. I do think uh, the Taliban will certainly have an opportunity for great gains um, with, with the U.S. military's departure. How great those gains will be, um, I think, is going to hinge a lot on you know the Biden administration's appetite and attitude for continuing use of air power. Um, and the American people and American Congress's appetite for continuing to fund the Afghan security forces um, at something near the, the level we've been funding them at. Because those really are two things that are underpinning um, you know, what the Afghan security forces currently do, which is kind of maintain their, their side of this stalemate in the war, uh, is U.S. air power uh, helps them uh, when, when the situation gets uh, in emergencies, I mean, like last fall, for instance, when there were big Taliban pushes, notwithstanding the, uh, the Doha agreement um, against Lashkargah and Kandahar City, um, it was U.S. air power that appears to have kind of saved the day and bailed them out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, w will Afghan cities start falling? Um, and, and how will the U.S. respond? Uh, to what degree are we willing to continue, uh, you know, launching a lethal air campaign? Um, in, in what we are trying to bill as, uh, you know, the aftermath of the end of America's forever war. Yeah, the public discussion has focused really on the issue of U.S. boots on the ground in Afghanistan, and not so much the possibility of a continuing military commitment to the country from afar. So that's one thing to bear in mind. Uh, Wes Morgan, thank you for coming on the Caravan Podcast. You can follow Wes on Twitter at, at Wesley S. Morgan, and be sure to check out his new book, The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. That's it for us. My colleague Russell Berman will be back in about two weeks for the next episode of the Caravan Podcast. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.